All right, everybody. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Let's get this show on the road. The psalm for the week is number 54. We will pray the psalm from the hymnal responsively by half verse. The uh, verse for the week in the congregation at prayer, 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 through 3, will serve as an antiphon for the psalm before and after. And the hymn of the week is 730. Next week, Bible class moves to the new time of 9.30. You are welcome to come to Chapel Matins with communion at 8.30 if you desire. But Bible class will start at 9.30. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. O God, save me by your name. And vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness put an end to them. With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The Lord is my rock, and my fortress, and my deliverer, the God of my strength, in whom I will trust my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. 
Lord our God, who desires not the death of the wicked, convert those who hate us without a cause, and turn the hearts of those who persecute your Christians. Protect the poor and the innocent against the oppression of unjust men. Grant us patience under the cross, and preserve us in the true faith all the days of our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And from the Catechism, under the Table of Duties, what does God's Word say? The hearers of God's Word owe their pastors. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. O Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you for the gift of pastors who preach your saving gospel and administer your life-giving sacraments to us. Crucify our flesh and destroy all impenitence and unbelief in us so that we who have received faithful instruction in the word of God might provide generously for the support of our pastors. Teach us to believe that our pastors, who faithfully sow the seed and tread out the grain of your word, are worthy of their wages and are entitled to reap from what they have sown. Teach us to believe that preaching and teaching your word is the most important work that our pastors do, so that we might honor and support them in this work, live together with them in the peace of your forgiveness, and hold them in the highest regard and love for the sake of the gospel. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that in the sacrament of holy baptism, you declare us righteous, you make us your children, you bestow upon us the gift of the Holy Spirit, you work forgiveness of sins and rescue from death and the devil. Grant your blessing and protection in their baptismal faith to Mark Schneider, Jan Finke, Sierra Frederich, Brenda Greshner, Beth Bender, and Mark Rubish celebrating baptismal birthdays this week. We give thanks to you for the gift of holy matrimony, wherein a man and a woman come together in one flesh to give and receive love and when it is your will, will for the upbringing of children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. We give thanks to you and pray your continued blessing to Travis and Lindsay Dubnicka, Jeff and Christine Dubnicka, Bob and Cheryl Piper, Bob and Doreen Corso, Barry and Maureen Worcester celebrating wedding anniversaries this week. And we commend to you those suffering afflictions of the body, especially Reverend Shane Coda, recovering from bypass surgery, Heather Peters, Barbara Weeding, Josiah Berenger in treatment for cancer, and Bernice Lemke in hospice care. Bring healing and renewed strength according to your will. Above all, preserve them in the peace of Christ. And grant your comfort to Sharon Martin's family as they mourn the death of Sharon's niece, Linda. Grant them to look through their grief 
to the promise of the resurrection and the glory that is to come. Bring peace in our land, bless our country with faithful civil stewards in the upcoming election. Let your merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of your humble servants, and that they may obtain their petitions, make them to ask such things as shall please you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Taught by our Lord and trusting in his promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hymn 730. What is the world to me? What is the world to me with all its vaunted pleasure when you and you alone, Lord Jesus, are my treasure, you only dearest Lord, my soul's dear shall be. You are my peace, my rest. What is the world to me? The world seeks to be praised and honored by the mighty, yet never once reflects that they are frail and flighty. But what I truly prize above all is He, my Jesus, He alone. What is the world to me? The world seeks after wealth and all that mammon offers. Yet never is content, though gold should fill coffers. I have a higher good, content with I'll be. My Jesus is my wealth, what is the world to me? What is the world to me? My Jesus is my treasure, my life, my health, my wealth, my friend, my love, my pleasure, my joy, my crown, my all, my bliss eternally. 
Once more then I declare, what is the world to me? Leave your hymnal open. Leave your hymnal open. Be so quick to close it up. Uh, a couple of things on this hymn. It, it fits in well with where we're going to start today, the end of, of um, chapter 11 and then going into, into chapter 12 as the new material. If you think of those Old Testament places, um, Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, Tyre and Sidon, if you remember last week in Matthew 11, beginning at verse 20, Jesus began to upbraid, reproach the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And going back to John the Baptist who sent his, his disciples, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus said, tell them what you hear and see. Everything Jesus was doing in his ministry was a fulfillment of the scriptures. Everything done like the Lord had called them to repentance in the Old Testament. If the works had been done in those Old Testament cities that have been done in you, they would have repented. So, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. And then verse 22, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Because here, you, Chorazin, uh, Capernaum, you had this Messiah himself standing in your midst. You know, healing the sick, raising the dead, giving new life, and you rejected him. If judgment fell upon them in the Old Testament, how much more upon, upon you? And so this description, you know, what is the world to me with all its vaunted pleasure, where all of the things of this life became the idols, the objects of worship, what people look to for their greatest good. And what's very interesting is um, when Christ is not your Lord and Savior, your greatest good, whatever is your idol will turn you inward in self-centeredness and pride. Recent events, in June, uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court, which thrust the question of abortion back to the states. Look at the rhetoric that has happened since then in terms of, you're taking away my rights, the woman's right, but my body and my this and my that. Notice how self-centered that is. So, I have the right to murder my child before it is born. And that is, that's lunacy. That's insanity. Uh, but in the name of what I want, in the name, nothing shall interfere with my will, my pleasures, my life, my desires. But in the end, it doesn't give any peace. You know, how many that follow that idolatrous way of unbelief have true contentment and true peace. They don't. So the world seeks to be praised and honored by the mighty, yet never once reflects they are frail and flighty. You know, and verse 3, the world seeks after wealth and all that mammon offers, yet never is content, though gold should fill its coffers. 
Okay. And then finally, what this hymn centers on at the end, what is the world to me? As Christians, we worship a person. Doctrine is important, but doctrine, teaching, is fundamentally about the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship a person. You know, all those people that worship Jesus, they fell down and worshiped him, Mary Magdalene and others, the Canaanite woman. They loved him because he is the source of true life and peace in his forgiveness. So that stanza for, you know, my Jesus is my treasure, my life, my health, my wealth, my friend, my love, my pleasure, my joy, my crown, my all, my bliss eternally. Once more than I declare, what is the world to me? Connie, before I forget, I was going to send you a text. We start at 9.30 next week. New uh, day school schedule that moves us back a bit. All right, so let us then go to chapter 11 at the end. Verse 25 through 29, I said I had a few more comments to make on that. Remember Jesus' words, whoever does not love, or whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. References like that, they're shocking, they're stunning. The reality is that when the love for Christ has first place in your heart, then you will be in proper balance to truly love those others with whom you have a relationship, whether it's father, mother, husband, wife, children, and so forth. So it is, it is the love of Christ and the love for Christ chief place in the Christian's heart that orders all the other loves rightly. Jesus said, verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Now remember what he just came out of, talking to the disciples of John the Baptist about what they had heard and seen in Jesus' ministry which were the wonderful acts of God's salvation by grace in Christ. How the so-called wise and prudent, were they wise? Yes or no? No. Were they prudent? No. no. What they were was self-righteous and deluded. So they rejected, remember, John the Baptist saying in verse 18 of chapter 11, he has a demon. Think about John. Could they upbraid John for a lifestyle of extravagance? <laughs> no. No. He came out of the wilderness. You know, he lived this austere life. So they couldn't attack him there, but he's got a demon. And why did he have a demon? What did he attack? Them. 
He attacked their self-righteousness and pride and called them to repentance. How dare you? We are the most righteous people on earth. Okay? Then Jesus comes with his disciples. He's eating and drinking. He is in the uh, restaurants with the uh, likes of Cherie Lafour having a scotch, you know, then you, and he says, you're a wine-bibber and a glutton. So he couldn't, couldn't win. Why? Because he doesn't live the way we do. Okay? And so their self-righteousness and, and pride was seen in both. So in verse 25, in Jesus' prayer, you have hidden these things. What would you say these things are? Salvation by grace. Salvation by grace. The mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. The compassion of God. The wise and the prudent are not wise and prudent. Who are the babes? Who are they? Yeah. Scribes in the first. No, who are the babes? You have revealed them to babes. Oh. Yeah, the Christian, regardless of age, who, who believes in Jesus and this salvation by grace. Now remember, here, you've revealed them to babes. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of child, uh, the kingdom of God as a little child, will by no means enter it. So we are all called to be babes receiving the gift of salvation by grace alone, clinging to Christ alone in this simplicity of faith. So it pleased the Father to reveal them uh, the reveal these mysteries to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things. So hear this prayer now that others hear, the disciples, now segues into his teaching. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And all things corresponds to Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, on the basis of his obedient suffering and death, where here again, you go, going back to the self-righteousness and pride of every age, I've got a right to this and so forth, Jesus is obedient to the Father unto death, letting go of his rights in order to secure the rights of others to stand before God as the children of God. Okay, So that's really cool. Anyway, uh, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. So, if you want to know the Father, who must you know? The Son. Okay? And again, as I pointed out last week, I want to I note every time there's an allusion to the persons of the Trinity here, this conversation you know, the, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. And yet, there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son, He's not the Father. There's three distinct persons, yet one God, in this communion of loving persons. All right. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So if you want to know the Father, you've got to know the Son. No wonder the hymn says what it says, and that stands four that we just sang. And then 28, 29, 30, among the most beloved and comforting passages of Jesus, come, you remember the old King James, right? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give thee rest. Yeah. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay, the first thing I want to comment on is all you who, are la who, are, who labor and are heavy laden. Laboring under what? Sin, the problems of this life, the sickness, the disease, the hardship, all of the things in the previous chapters we saw Jesus giving relief to. Come unto me, I will give you rest. Now, the word rest here ties into um, which of the Ten Commandments that talks about rest? Third commandment. Sabbath means rest. Sabbath is not chiefly about a day, it's chiefly about rest. So when in the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day, it is as if the Lord were saying, remember you need to rest. And where does this rest come from? The word of God. Yeah, it comes from Christ, from his word, come to me. I will give you Sabbath, okay? I will give you rest from sin, from death, from the power of the devil, from all of the problems of this life. And that's a promise. Now, come to me is an invitation to what? Or a call to what? Faith. Okay. Now, here is the Holy Spirit, even though he's not named. Because no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says. So anytime Jesus is preaching, the Holy Spirit is at work. Remember at Jesus' baptism, he was in chapter 3, uh, the Father anointed him with whom? The Spirit. So God the Father anointed the Son in the Jordan with the Holy Spirit, that he might go about doing good, and every time Jesus preaches, the Holy Spirit is at work through the preaching to call to faith. So no wonder the Catechism says, I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the Gospel. Okay? So, the Holy Trinity is here at the end of chapter 11. In the Father and the Son referenced in Jesus' prayer and in Jesus' call where the Holy Spirit invites to faith. Okay? The second thing I want to say about 28, 29, and 30 is the idea of a yoke. This is where we, we ended last week. Um, oxen are paired up, a team of oxen, they're joined together with a yoke, and the yoke is necessary so they can pull whatever the load is. So if you, have a, if you would be an oxen and you have to pull with your yoke, is that hard or is that easy? It's hard, you know, it's work. The oxen works. So what a strange saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is not hard. 
It's easy. And my burden is not heavy, but light. How can that be? <laughs> well, there is a hardness to the yoke. And yet the yoke is not hard. There is a hardness to the yoke, and yet it is difficult. What does the call to faith in Christ demand of us? Repentance, Mark. The death of the old Adam, the sinful nature, the arrogant self-righteousness and pride, which is part of the old Adam that we see in the Pharisees, that's a part of us. Is that a pleasurable experience to be put to death? Okay. To renounce the, the flesh. You know, I renounce the devil. I renounce the world. I renounce my flesh, my Adamic nature. On the one hand, that's what you're called to. I can't do that. I believe that I cannot repent. But yet the Holy Spirit calls me to repent. What a paradox. So what is impossible for us is possible with God. Okay? And so he is speaking of this lovely paradox where we're called to renounce self and cling only to Jesus. And faith, oh, Luther says, what a powerful thing is. Now, he's talking about faith in Christ. It is a busy and active thing. It's a, it's a joyful thing. It is unhindered and unhampered by any of the problems of, li that, of life. And that's how it ends. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. For he lays no other yoke upon us and no other burden upon us but that we trust in him. Like the hymn says, my life my health, my wealth, my friend, my dearest treasure. Okay. And of course, those who worship Jesus in the gospel, their singular focus was him, not themselves. And that is the final source of peace. So I tell people, no matter what their problems are in life, I don't know if any of those will be solved in this life. I can't, I can't guarantee that. But I can promise you in Christ forgiveness of sins and that you are right with him and that you are righteous. And if you have that, in the final analysis, what more do you need? I mean, every one of us, if the Lord delays, every one of us will die of something. But if we have Christ, okay. Every one of us goes through turmoil in life, grief, sadness, hardship. But if we have Christ, you know, what is the world to me with all its vaunted pleasure? When thou and thou alone, Lord Jesus, are my treasure. See? So, now, that's impossible for us to believe. So when I'm talking about faith and the call to faith, I'm not talking to you about something you've got to muster up some spiritual strength. The more you feel your weaknesses and are buffeted, come to me, he says. I'll give you rest. So the rest, the faith, the comfort, the peace, comes from him and from his word. See? No wonder he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Okay? Melinda. Doesn't a yoke also keep you from 
Doesn't a yoke keep you from straying? Yes. So faith keeps us. It is the narrow way, as he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Other questions? Polly. You have your... It's just holding up my chin. Okay. <laughs> Representative of the family. Okay. All right. So we move then, if there's no other uh, comments or questions, to chapter 12. Yes, Verla. Oh, it is, sure. And in the creation, see, this is what Jesus does in his ministry. He establishes order. In the fall, the creation that was good was thrust into disorder and chaos. Now, he reorders the creation, and it is good again. Okay, um, chapter 12. Now, remember last week, I talked to you about what the apostles witnessed. And it wasn't the apostles alone. Anybody who knew the Old Testament was witnessing these things too, if they had ears to hear and eyes to see. And that expression, you know, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, uh, is, is not simply understand what I'm doing here, but see and hear and understand that what I am doing is fulfillment that you might know and believe with certainty, I am the Christ. So these, this chapter 12 is loaded, the first 21 verses, with Old Testament either quotations or allusions. So where shall we begin? We shall begin by looking at the Old Testament. Hold your place here and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verse 25. Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, which is the last verse in that chapter. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, so before the sickle has been put to it, verse 25. When you come, the other thing I was going to say is um, if it's easier for you not to turn to the Old Testament, just listen, that's okay too. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand. But you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. <laughs> What's the point? You see, if you go into my backyard, they're not quite ripe yet. But in another month, if you walk through there, you say, oh, these Cortland apples look good. Help yourself to one. But don't get out your bushel basket and pick all the apples off the trees. It's a, okay? Uh, what is the principle here? 
It's understood that two, two things are, are being observed in this uh, Deuteronomy passage. The grain in the field, whose is it? Well, it, it's the owner's on the one hand, and yet God has given it to the owner for the purpose of helping the neighbor. So if the neighbor walks through, let him pluck some of the grain if he's hungry and eat it. And let the owner not object. Get out of my grain field, like the miser. It's mine. Okay. Uh, but you don't have the right to take the sickle to it. So these property laws do not deny personal property. There is such a thing as personal property. However, personal property is still the Lord's and it is given to you to be a steward of those things for the benefit of others, your, your family and, and others and so forth. Okay? So just remember that. Now I'll have you turn to Exodus 31. That would be the before this. Exodus chapter 31. Verse 15, Exodus 31, verse 15. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Literally, the rest of rests. The rest of all rests. Because what is associated with the Sabbath is not merely stopping work. Do you remember a number of months ago I said the Pharisees made not working a work? Okay? The blue laws, you know, where stores were closed on the Sabbath and shops, and then you stayed in bed on the Sabbath. Yeah. I'm observing the Sabbath. No, you're not observing the rest of rests. You're a Lazy slugger. Okay. So work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wow, in the Old Testament. That is an, how seriously God takes this rest. All right. Now, without turning to it, think about how this connects to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. The day you eat of it, you will die. To eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to turn away from God's word, which is the source of life, so the result is death. So the, the Sabbath is all about the word of God and the rest that comes from the word, because apart from the word, there's no life. Okay. Apart from the word, there's only death and sin. So that's the severity here. And then, if you want, just a couple of chapters later, chapter 35, verse 2, Sabbath regulations again. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. 
Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Again, it's restating the same thing in the earlier chapter. When was the Sabbath itself instituted? Or to say it a different way, when did God establish the idea that true rest, contentment, fulfillment comes from him and from his word? At creation. He had finished all the work that he has done now, Verla, and he said it was very good, and he rested from the work which he had done. So part of, part of the Sabbath rest is to find our enjoyment in God. If you don't find your enjoyment in God, you will never be at rest. Okay. But that's why, so the Sabbath laws are not, you know, arbitrary, capricious laws unto themselves in the Old Testament. They were intended to underscore how there's, no, there's not going to be any peace for you, Sheree, except in the Lord and in his word. Notice how it, it corresponds then to what Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor, I will give you rest. Okay, uh, let's see, are we done with these passages? No, we're not. Leviticus chapter 8. Yes. Uh, they, they were to, just like in the wilderness, they would gather the manna, but they were able to gather for two days. Yes, well, aren't you glad we're not under the restriction of these Sabbath laws any longer, which I'm coming to in a moment, why not? But anyway, Leviticus chapter 8, verse 31. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and eat it there with the bread that is in the basket of consecration offerings as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. Now, who is Aaron? The priest. He was the high priest, and his sons were also priests after him. And then, so that the boiled flesh and the, uh, the showbread is being referred to there. And then in Leviticus chapter 24... Verse 9, well, it, 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 verse 9 is the climax, but just go back a couple of verses to verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Why 12? 12 tribes. One for each of the 12 tribes. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake, so that's the... The, the quantity, the size uh, of the, the flour. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial. 
an offering made by fire to the Lord. So that table was gold. The table for the showbread was overlaid with gold. And then the frankincense was to be put there with the showbread. Who brought gold and frankincense to Jesus? The Magi. Why did they think those things were important? Because gold, frankincense, and then myrrh, the scented oil, was all over the Torah. And then verse 8, every Sabbath uh, shall be, it shall, he shall be, set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. So they'd replace this bread every week, these 12 cakes, every Sabbath. Uh, it was it renewed. It's like in uh, C.S. Lewis, the uh, tables are in the, the, the voyage of the dawn treader, the what was, was, was renewed every, every night. Anyway, um, and every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. Susan? Well, you have to bake bread with fire. It doesn't mean you burn it. Frankincense is an actual edible herb that's good for various things. So, so it wouldn't be detrimental to actually eat it. But in the other the priest it also says that it should be burned, whatever's not eaten, should be burned after the previous the previous Leviticus, where it says, "Eat it." The sons will boil the flesh and eat it before the door, and then after that should be burned. So I'm assuming this is the showbread that they're eating. Yes, it as is. Well, right, okay. and it, it's called a showbread. Or what's the other name for this bread that I want? the bread of the presence, the presence of Yahweh. So you've got the table overlaid with gold and a cake for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the priests eat it, sort of speak, on behalf of all Israel. Okay, so I just want you to see, to see that here. And then who says elsewhere, I am the bread of life, or the true bread that came down from heaven, Jesus. Then one final Old Testament passage, 1 Samuel 21. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, chapter 21. During the reign of, well, it's, it's before he actually takes over as king. He's being hunted by Saul, David. Chapter 21, David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. So 
Ahimelech would be in charge of what? The tabernacle and the showbread. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David, because he knew, everybody knew Saul is after David, and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which you, I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Of course, Saul wanted to kill him. I mean, now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is the holy bread, the bread of the presence. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy. That means their bodies. And the bread is in effect common even though it was sanctified in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Mom's little baby loves... No, no, I... Okay. So here is an example, is it not, in the Old Testament where you know, all of these strident laws about the showbread, in this case, only for the priest. Now here you have Ahimelech giving the bread to David. How can he do it? Shouldn't he be struck down? Well, there's a couple of things going on, at the very least. In general, all of these laws were not intended to be ends in themselves, but to be of service to God's people for their good, for their benefit. In general, you can say that in their entirety. Why did the Pharisees keep the law or insist upon the law being kept? Not for the benefit of the congregation, but for their own self-centered benefit. But in the narrow sense, and something more significant here, who is David? He's going to be the king at this time in uh, 1 Samuel 21. He has already been what? Anointed. anointed. By the way, with <laughs> myrrh. Okay? He'd been anointed, which means he's more than king designee. Okay? And he eats the bread of the presence. Uh, in the, in, the anoint, in the Lord's anointed funnel, all of the Old Testament hopes and expectations for Messiah, which means anointed one, uh, promised in the Old Testament. Okay? And who is David's greater son? Jesus. Jesus. All right. Now, with that in mind, go to chapter 12. Because I, I wanted you to have all of these passages in place rather than just tell you about them when we're reading chapter 12. Because in chapter 12, Matthew writes the account so that anybody who knows 
these passages and Old Testament worship life would immediately uh, resonate with what Matthew is reporting. So at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields, there they are, on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Were they sinning? No, they were given such permission, as it were, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 23, 25. Now, they didn't take their sickle and start harvesting the whole thing, but they plucked grain. And one could argue that was work. That's what the Pharisees did. To which Jesus could say, do you not know the scriptures? But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Are they correct? No, no they're not correct. They're incorrect. Then he said to them, have you not read what David did? This is the first Samuel 21, 6. When he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? What is that referring to? What are the priests doing on the Sabbath, which would technically be considered profaning the Sabbath? They're working. They're doing their priestly work. How can they work on the Sabbath if you're not to work on the Sabbath? So you, you see how the function of the Sabbath is not chiefly about the work of not working. Okay? I mean, I'll tell you, it's hard work on Sunday morning. It takes a lot of energy to officiate and to preach and to so forth. You should try it sometime. Okay? It's a big burn of energy on that day compared to all others. So it's a good thing it's the only day we pastors work. But at any rate. <laughs> Yet I say to you that in this place, verse 6, there is one greater than the temple, where all of those ceremonial laws, you know, were seen concretely in evidence. And who is the one greater than the temple that's easy? Jesus. Jesus. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And who is he referring to being condemned? Yeah. Him. You are condemning the one who is guiltless because you have not understood the meaning of this passage. Now, that is Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And for those of you who don't cavort around in the Old Testament that often. Hosea is harder to find. It's the first of the minor prophets. Okay. It's right after Daniel. And this becomes an important passage that defines uh, the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. Hosea 6, verse 6. 
For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now, he instituted all of the burnt offerings. They weren't invented by people. But if you see the burnt offerings as the end in themselves or the works of the ceremonial law as ends in themselves and don't see how they serve the person of the Lord and this I desire mercy means, you can rewrite it, I desire to show mercy and not to receive your sacrifices of the law. Say, that's what that passage means. So look at the context of it. Verse 5 says, I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are like light that goes forth, for I desire to show mercy and not to receive your sacrifices. The knowledge of God is more important to me than the burnt offerings that you administer. And again, he's talking about the very burnt offerings that he instituted. But if it's not done with faith in the mercy of God, then it's, it's fruitless. And it's actually, it profanes the true intent of the Sabbath, of the Sabbath laws, of the showbread, of all of these rules and regulations. Okay? So, in these passages, chapter 12, now we've, we've gone through the first seven verses and then eight kind of concludes this, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay? That's why David in the Old Testament as the Lord's anointed, could eat the showbread. He's not a high priest. Ah, but Jesus is greater than the temple. He is priest and prophet and king. All things are fulfilled in him. And so you see then when Jesus and his disciples pluck grain and eat of it, Matthew is making the point. Do you see how Bear witness, bear witness to this, how he is the greater David. He is greater than the temple. He is the true source of Sabbath rest, just as he promised, come unto me and I will give you rest. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Okay, so um, we didn't even look at all of the passages that we could have looked at in the first eight verses of chapter 12. But this is, I, I did that, and I wanted to start with those Old Testament passages. Not that you, you know, fully grasp and understand all of them, but you see the underlayment um, to why Matthew does what he does. Jesus' ministry is not just, you know, without connection to the Old Testament. It is in every way a fulfillment of that. And, and for what purpose? That faith in him might be anchored. He really is Messiah, the Lord's anointed, the Christ, the true king, the son of David, the true priest, okay, after the order not of Aaron but of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, you know, he is all of these things that you may believe. So in, uh, Jesus says in John's gospel, or, or actually John says of Jesus' ministry, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, and that believing 
you may have life in his name. That's not written in that language in Matthew's gospel, but it is written in all of the, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled. So, again, you're tired of hearing it at this time, but it's really important. What they're witnessing is not just what Jesus did and not just what Jesus said, but that what he did and what he said is a fulfillment of all of this, okay, uh, in the Old Testament. Comments or questions on that? Now, I want to take us through verse 21 yet today. Did I hear, see a hand up over there? Susan. These things, the things you have seen and heard, yep. Not everybody. Yeah, they saw the acts, they heard the words, but they, unbelief, hid the meaning of that, that he is, he is Savior, he's fulfillment of all that. Okay, now in verse 9, now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. Now synagogue is a word that means uh, gathered together. It's similar to what we have as ekklesia in Greek, where you're gathered out of the world together, or congregation, where you're gathered together, you congregate around word and sacrament. Behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now that question rests upon those first eight verses. Learn what this means. I desire to show mercy and not to receive your sacrifices. So after all of this, was it, did not David eat of the showbread? We're plucking grain on the Sabbath? Okay, now I've taught you, so to speak. So is it lawful? to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him, which indicates what was hidden from them, you know, the truth, the truth that, he is the, that he is the fulfillment of these things. Then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? And what's the answer? Would they do that? Yes, they would. Sheep are expensive. I'm going to lift my sheep out on the Sabbath. Or how much more value than a man is a sheep? Much more valuable. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath is about God doing his good. Now, even when we don't work, the purpose is to let God work in you, to do his good in you. All right, so then he answers them by healing. So in other words, instead of saying, yes, it's, it's lawful to heal, he just tells the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the others. Then the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him that they might destroy him. To which Jesus prayed, as Susan correctly indicated, I thank you, Father, You've hidden these things from the wise and prudent, who are not wise and prudent at all, 
and if you've revealed them to the babes, the disciples, and the man with the withered hand who received this blessing. And the, okay, and so verse 14, again, uh, they plotted to destroy him. Now that references like that are scattered throughout the gospel. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Why? Because he showed them that their lifestyle was not the correct way to live. It's true, but there's something more important than that. It's centered in Hosea 6. His, they rejected him because of the mercy that he, they hated, think, can you imagine, they hated him because he healed a man with a withered hand? They hated him because he cleansed a leprous man on the Sabbath? They hated him because he forgave a Canaanite woman? Are you kidding me? They hate us because the church has uh, pregnancy centers to help unwed mothers with food and clothes. Are you kidding me? Do you see the parallel there? They hate the Christian because the Christian has a food bank for the poor in the inner city. Are you kidding me? Because they proclaim forgiveness indiscriminately and call all to repentance and to Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. That's what they... So they hated Jesus because of salvation by grace. If he had criticized the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, saying, you poor people, you're poor because you don't follow Rick Warren's purpose-driven life, Golterman, you know, or you're maimed and you're sick because you don't have enough faith, Sharon Martin, okay? Your life is a mess because you're married to Larry Martin, Sherry Martin, okay, whatever. So, and if you had to cleaned up your life, you'd be just like us Pharisees. Had Jesus preached that message, oh, they would have loved him. Why? Because it would have reinforced their own God of self-righteousness. So they hated him because of his mercy to those whom they believed were unworthy. Because if what he has done is correct, then their righteousness is no righteousness at all. So when Jesus knew it, that they wanted to destroy him, he withdrew from there. It wasn't his time yet. The cross is not yet. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Notice, universal grace, because he came to bring salvation to all. That's why the healing went out to all. And he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, now, Verses 18 through 21 are all from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. You don't have to turn there because it's quoted by Matthew. Behold my servant. Jesus is the suffering servant as well as the king and the priest and the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. What does that remind you of? The baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, which he did at his baptism. There's the blessed trinity. Notice, 
The Father is speaking, behold, my servant, my servant is the Son, the elect one, Psalm 2. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, the Father is pleased with the Son, I will put my spirit, the Holy Spirit, upon him, upon the Son, and he will declare justice. You can circle that. You can put righteousness to the Gentiles. It's the righteousness or the justice of Christ. And to the Gentiles. This is the Old Testament prophet Isaiah saying that God's justice and righteousness will be proclaimed for the salvation of the Gentiles. This is a Jewish gospel. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He doesn't whine. He doesn't protest. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory, righteousness to victory, the victory over sin, death, and the devil. That's what his righteousness leads to. That's what the justice of the cross leads to. So the justice that he performs or the righteousness that he procures is on the cross. And he sends forth this righteousness to the victory over sin, death, and the devil. And because of it, his name, uh, in, in his name, the Gentiles will, will trust. Now this reference to a bruised reed and a smoking flax, he will not break or quench. No matter how frail, insignificant, presumably weak, faith may be, he shall not snuff it out. But rather, he will establish righteousness. You think of all of those people that came to Jesus then, who were bruised and broken and battered with little faith, but yet he healed them all. Yep. Yes. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. And they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the things spoken of in the beginning of chapter 12. All right. Good. I wanted to go through 21 today. So we did. Remember, Jesus is rejected because he embodies the gospel of God's grace. That's why he's hated. All right. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. 9.30 next week. 9.30. Furthermore, uh, you'll be seeing announcements in the bulletin. Wednesday night divine service beginning in September moves to 6.30 p.m. So Wednesday night divine services will be henceforth starting in September at 6.30. Gives a little more flexibility to the schedule for choir and other things. Didache is on Wednesday night starting the 14th of September. And I'll be, uh, I have a schedule. We could have given that schedule out today. If you want to hang around for a schedule, we can zip them off. Okay. So yes, uh, it'll be a Didache divine service.